Our reading this morning is uh, from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest heaven! Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we know that you love your son and with him, with him you are well pleased. We pray that this morning as we approach this passage, this story, that you would enlarge our hearts to love him as you love him, to love him in our obedience, to love him in our worship, to love him in how we love one another. Father, we pray that through your spirit you would be shaping our affections even this morning. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So the passage that was just read is probably a fairly familiar passage. That passage or the parallels in the other gospels are read virtually every Palm Sunday. Uh, and so when you're approaching a passage that is very familiar, sometimes we say, you know what, to, to shed new light on this, let's, let's read this as if it was the first time we had ever read it. Uh, let's put ourselves in the, the shoes, the sandals of first century recipients of this book who maybe didn't know anything about the story of Jesus and ask what kind of things they would be noticing, what questions would they be asking. And that's a really profitable way to approach scriptures, especially familiar passages. But that's not what we're going to do this morning. Uh, I'm going to take a different approach. Have you ever read a book or maybe seen a movie that had a really good surprise ending? Maybe a, a twist, plot twist at the end. And you get to it and you're like, whoa. And now you want to rewatch the movie to pick up all the things that you missed along the way. One of my favorite movies is like that. It's called The Usual Suspects. It's got a great twist at the end. And as soon as you see it, you want to rewatch the movie to find all the things that you missed, all the clues, all the little quirks that you realize were purposeful things along the way. Uh, the movie The Sixth Sense is like that too. My wife likes that one because she figured that one out before I did. She likes to rub that in a little bit. Flight Club, it's another one like that. The old classic Hitchcock, Psycho, another one, that kind of surprise plot twist and you get to the end and you just, you want to watch it again. 
I'm going to encourage us to approach this familiar text like that. We've read the end of the story. We know how it ends. Not just Mark's story that he's telling that ends in crucifixion and and resurrection, but the whole story, including John's gospel. John describes Jesus as the Word and says the Word was with God and the Word was God. And in John's gospel, you hear Jesus saying these remarkable, startling even things. He says, I and the Father were one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Before Abraham was, I am, Jesus said. And you read on and you read more of the story and you get to Hebrews. And the author of Hebrews says this person, Jesus, he is the exact representation, the divine stamp, the exact image of God. Then you get into Revelation, which is the end of the story. And you see Jesus at the throne room of God, being worshipped by angels, singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And you get to the end of the end of the story. And Jesus returns. And it's a different kind of triumphal entry than what we're talking about this morning. It's Jesus, in all his might, all his glory, riding not a donkey, but a war charger. We know the plot twist. Now we go back to this story and we ask, what details are there that take on new relevance? What, what do we see here that makes us go, whoa, okay, now, now I get it. And now that hits me in an all new way. And as we do that, I just want to hit really two words. Two words. The first word is maybe a surprising word that I'm going to pull this one out because it's almost a throwaway word. You read it, and you just pass over it, and you keep reading. It's the word need. Probably didn't even notice it in the passage, did you? Jesus tells his disciples to go and untie a donkey, and if anyone says, what are you doing? Tell them, the Lord needs it. If you're anything like me, and I assume you are, because I don't like assuming I'm weird, um, you don't like to admit that you need something. I don't like to admit that I need help. It goes all the way back to my childhood. I didn't want to take help tying my shoes. Most kids don't, right? And so it takes them 20 minutes to tie a shoe, and you ask, can I help you? Nope. Self do it. Nope. I'm going to do it. We don't like to admit our needs. I see it on Bob's face every time he comes into my office and asks for help with his cell phone. He doesn't like to admit that he can't figure it out. And I have to ask for my kids' help in technology nowadays, but we don't like it because we like to think of ourselves as independent. We like to be independent. But the Son of God truly, truly is independent. Theologians use a word, aseity, to describe the character or the nature of God. It's a Latin word, means of or from oneself. And it's meant to describe the attribute of God that he is completely and utterly independent in his being, in everything. 
He doesn't find his source in anything else. He doesn't depend on anything for his sustenance. He is completely and utterly without need. But Jesus needs. He needs to borrow a donkey. Jesus, who is God's agent of creation... John tells us that through him all things were made. He is the Alpha and the Omega. To him and through him are all things. He's the one who owns a cattle on a thousand hills and, yes, the donkeys in every stable that you can imagine. But he needs. He he needs to borrow a donkey. That that speaks of Jesus' humility, of his condescension to come and be with us to take on our situation as his own to be needy just like we are needy Jesus' condescension did not begin when he said I need a donkey you can trace his condescension I'm not saying condescending that's got a negative connotation condescension stooping to be with us That began when he entered the virgin's womb. When he was born as a helpless, needy infant. And it continued through his life. He needed to eat, to drink, to sleep. He got tired. All expressions of his humility, his condescension. And here on this this day where he's receiving the most acclaim during his earthly ministry. He's receiving the highest praise during his 33 years on earth. It's an expression still of infinite condescension. Even if this had been a parade through Rome with Caesars and senators and generals paying homage, Even if it had been a ticker tape parade in New York City with all the world's leaders there to pay honor, it still would have been an expression of infinite condescension. Only when the scene includes all men, all women, bowing the knee and proclaiming Jesus as Lord. Only when it includes the hosts of heaven singing in their thundering voices his praises. Only when it includes the entirety of creation proclaiming his worth does it match his glory and his majesty. Now don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying Jesus didn't accept the worship. I'm saying he accepted it and it's an expression of his condescension, his coming to be with us where we are. We often think, and rightfully so, of our praises ascending to heaven, ascending to God. And they do. But God stoops. The Son stoops to receive them in humility. It's not that our praise and our worship is worthy. It's never pure enough, never fervent enough. But he stoops in humility and receives it. Now the road to humiliation and 
condescension does not end here. It hasn't even reached its nadir. Its low point is on Good Friday. But this is just another example of Christ's humility riding on a donkey. Yes, Palm Sunday is about Jesus' kingship, but it's about his humble kingship, setting aside his prerogatives, not claiming all the rights of deity to which he is entitled, but coming as a humble king and receiving worship. That's the first word, need. When you know the whole story, that word stands out as something that doesn't seem to quite fit, but it does. God shouldn't need, but he does, because he humbly became one of us. The second word stands out. I think most of us pick the second word out as an important word in this passage, and it's the word Hosanna. We sang it. The kids sang it. It's an Aramaic word, which means save us. It's actually a plea. Save us, we pray. It comes, comes from Psalm 118, verse 25. Save us, we pray. Hosanna is actually a declaration of need. It's not Jesus' need for the donkey. Now it's our need. And it is a universal need. Hearts ache. And there's this cry in our hearts, in every heart, save us, we pray. Sometimes it it gets suppressed and pushed down. Other times it it gets expressed in various ways. I, I... I love Bloomington. I, I love the diversity of this town. When my wife and I lived in Chicago, we lived in an apartment building that had six apartments. And there was us, and a Korean family, a Mexican family, a Russian family, and a 95-year-old lady from Sicily. It was so great, the diversity there. Now, the smells in the hallway when everyone was cooking got a little wonky, but... <laughs> We loved the diversity. Then we moved to a small, small town in Pennsylvania where diversity meant, are you Italian or Polish? And then we come to Bloomington. And, and we love, I love especially, the food on 4th Street and the expressions of diversity. And I love the colors and I love the, the different language. It's exciting. It's intriguing. All these differences... But there's common things that connect us all. And one of them is this cry. Save us. Save us, we pray. Again, some express it in different ways. They, they look at a relationship and they might say, save me. Save me, I pray. Not understanding that the person they're looking to for salvation is just as needy as they are and cannot provide it. Others look to wealth and say, wealth, save me. Not realizing that the security wealth provides is simply a mirage and cannot save. Some cultures look to education to save. Others to powerful armies 
or to technology or to charismatic leaders or to better policies. Other religions look to the self and purports to equip you to, to climb out on your own or purports to give you the, the skills necessary to escape cycles of desire which leads to pain and suffering. What we're missing so often is that salvation has to come from outside of ourselves. We need someone outside of our situation to save us. I'm in a book group, and right now we're, we're reading a novel about the Underground Railroad. It's a painful book to read, but it's good. When you put yourself in the situation of the slaves in the deep south, you realize they needed salvation that came from outside of themselves. They weren't in a position to free themselves. They needed the help of those who ran the Underground Railroad. Our situation is even more desperate than that. Because we can't make it to a house of refuge on our own. We need a Savior who will come to where we are at and break the shackles and pick us up and carry us to the place of refuge. We need salvation that is outside of ourselves. Not just salvation from armies or bad policies, but salvation from sin and guilt and shame and even the wrath of God. Jesus is just that kind of Savior. Uniquely equipped to be where we are, to know the need, but still mighty God who can save. If you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress, there's still time to jump in on that. You can get the first part of the book read at least. In the second part of the book, there's a scene, a part of the story, where Prudence, one of the characters, is catechizing Christiana's child, Joseph. Catechizing is not as painful as it sounds. It just means instruction. And she asks, why is it that we have to look to God to be saved? And Joseph says, sin is so great and mighty a tyrant that no one can pull us out of its clutches but God. Jesus is God, pulling us out of sin's clutches. The one who needed to borrow a donkey is the Savior that we need to save us and to restore all things. It's not just a partial salvation. It's a cosmic salvation that Jesus brings. Hosanna. Save us, we pray. Have you ever wondered why that word doesn't get translated? I mean, it's an Aramaic word right in the middle of a whole bunch of English words. Why didn't they just translate that as save us, we pray? Well, because by the time of the first century, when this crowd is singing this praise, it had become a liturgical word that was simply an expression of praise and worship. 
kind of like hallelujah or even amen. It had taken on a, a meaning of, of praise and, and worship. It was liturgical. Have any of you ever seen those old video clips of early rock stars? Elvis, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones. Maybe some of you were actually at some of those concerts and you were the, you know, the, the crying, adoring women in the front row. And they look at them and you're like, that is so weird. I don't get that. But we have a, a habit of offering undue veneration to musicians, to athletes, to political leaders. Veneration that, that borders on outright worship at times. When the Pharisees witnessed this scene, the crowd singing, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, they told Jesus, stop them. Rebuke them. Some suggest that they did that because they were afraid of Rome and that this scene, I mean, they are, after all, declaring Jesus to be king. They were afraid that that was going to cause an uproar and Rome was going to come kind of crashing down on them. And there's probably something to that line of reasoning. But I think they were just offended. They were offended that this kind of worship was being offered to Jesus, a man. It seemed like idolatry. And if we didn't know the whole story, we would say, yeah, maybe it was. But we know Jesus is God incarnate. This wasn't inappropriate idolatry. This was the most appropriate thing that they could have done. Worship. This is the purpose for which they were created, to worship. This was them recognizing their Savior right in front of their faces. It's not idolatry, but it is the most right thing they could have done. Worship and adore him. So out of this passage, what, what do we take away? What are practical applications? I'll be right up front, and I'm going to say, I'm not going to offer you any. I, I don't think there's anything practical saying go and do this now i think the applications from this passage are heart applications i think they ought to affect our affections our loves our understandings i, I hope that through this passage we appreciate more deeply the humble love of jesus christ for you the humble love that would set aside the prerogatives of deity and become needy for you. I hope that we realize the appropriateness of worship, of glorifying Jesus Christ. Life, frankly, doesn't work apart from that. You can make it look like it's working. You can make yourself look successful. But life does not work apart from that because that is the purpose for which you were created. 
to love and to worship God. To love and to worship his son, Jesus Christ. Those are the kind of takeaways I think we should walk out of here today with this, from this passage. But most importantly, I hope we walk out giving voice to that cry, save us, we pray. I hope that that cry that's deep in our heart is loosed and can come through our vocal cords and onto our lips and we can say, looking at Jesus, save us, we pray. Maybe today is the first time you've felt the weight of your sin and of the guilt and the shame. And you look to Jesus and for the first time say, save us, we pray. And hear his promise that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And maybe you gave that cry 20, 30, 40 years ago. That's fantastic. But you will, will you acknowledge with me how easy it is to slip back into patterns of self-help? Where we now start to declare, self-do it. I got it. I'm good. No. Even today, 20, 30, 40 years into your Christian walk, you still need to look to Jesus and say, save. Save me, I pray. Will you go to prayer with me even right now? Father, we thank you for how your spirit works. Father, we've we pray that today you would be drawing us deeper into an acknowledgement of our dependence upon you. We confess, we know, we believe that you are strong and mighty to save. And we thank you that you are gracious and kind and humble enough to come to us to save us. We pray that you would receive all the glory and all the honor. In Jesus' precious name, amen.